Uh, this week is uh, this is week three of our uh, study of the book of Colossians. Hopefully you know by now that the book of Colossians was originally a letter written by the Apostle Paul, one of a number of letters that he wrote that became scripture eventually. Uh, Paul uh, had with him Timothy. I had a conversation with someone this week. Why doesn't Timothy get a lot of airtime? Well, Paul's kind of the lead guy. But Timothy was with him. They're writing to this uh, church or Christian community in a city called Colossae. Colossae was in what's today Turkey. It was then called Asia Minor. Colossae uh, was a significant city agriculturally in the time and kind of a crossroads of uh, commerce. But there was a great earthquake there in the year 61. Colossae did not survive that earthquake, but Paul's letter that preceded the earthquake did survive and became eventually a part of the canon that we call the Bible. And it, uh, one of the reasons that it survived was because it had a lot of rich material in it uh, about what the early church was like, about uh, the things that were going on in the church, uh, about Paul's recommendations and encouragements and rebukes to the church. So the letter uh, had great value to the early church, and so uh, for a variety of reasons, it survived. There were multiple forces, beliefs, philosophies, uh, religions pulling on the community uh, of Christ in Colossae early on, and we pick up some of these by inference in, in reading through Colossians. Some of those are subtle. Some of them are not so subtle. We talked the last two weeks about a philosophy that had made its way into the church called Gnosticism, and maybe I'll touch on it a little bit more this morning. But some of what Paul writes, we don't get unless we drill really deeply and it goes over our head because we're not a church that's wholly uh, infected by Gnosticism, but we'll try to see if we can pick up bits and pieces of what we're going on in that community as we go through this morning. First, uh, let's pray again. Pray with me. God, settle our minds, settle our hearts, settle us. Help us to settle into uh, your presence. Thank you for your mercy toward us as we've sung about forgive as you have and continue to forgive us, all of us, myself included, and uh, chief among us, sinners broken in need of your grace and your mercy and always your love. Reveal to us yourself through your word. Help us to see and hear and be receptive, good soil. Plant within us things that will grow and that will bring us joy and bring you joy and that will uh, inch by inch, mile by mile, bring about your kingdom in our midst and in our lives and in our hearts. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words in any way stray or deviate or are inconsistent with your word, may they be quickly forgotten. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. So reading again this Sunday from, again this Sunday, from Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, uh, and the six verses that follow, it may have uh, this section of Scripture, which is worthy of your memorizing, as I mentioned last week, uh, probably functioned as a hymn. Uh, it's, it's poetic in its original writing and may have functioned as a hymn and was really a core statement, not just in Colossians, but in all of the New Testament, one of the most important statements about the Christ, about Christ, about Jesus. Uh, so pay close attention and listen closely. This is the word of God. Paul writes, inspired by the Spirit, the Son, in other words, Jesus, 
is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And in reading these verses last Sunday morning, we focused on the reality that Jesus is the image of the invisible God and that God was pleased to have all of God's fullness dwell in him. The Gnostics believed that what was spiritual was good and what was physical or flesh or material was bad or evil, A, or B, that it didn't exist at all. It was a figment of our imaginations. Either way, they treated the body as if the body did not matter. They either abused it or punished it. One of those sort of directions is the way that they went as things played out for them. They didn't appreciate the physical world their bodies, the material world around them, they were in some ways attempting to be super spiritual. Gnosticism also thus denied that God who is spirit and good could exist in physical form. Gnosticism denied that God could dwell in flesh, that God could become or be man or human. Though the incarnation of God in and as Jesus is and was a central tenet and trait of the person of Jesus and so also of the Christian faith and our faith. And so against Gnosticism, Paul declares the Son, like no other, is the image of the invisible God and that God was pleased to have all of God's fullness, all of his character, all of his traits, all of his person, all of his being dwell in Jesus Christ. And there are, therefore, as we talked about last Sunday, if you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. If you want to know who God is, look to Jesus. He is the radiance, as the author of the book of Hebrews wrote, as we read last week. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's being. And then when Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, he doesn't mean that Jesus was born first. The scriptures are clear that Cain was the first to be born physically. But when the term firstborn occurs in the scriptures, it almost always means, as it does here, first in rank rather than order. First in rank or authority or importance rather than first in line. And Paul writes, as Paul writes, Jesus was not the firstborn, notice, of creation or the firstborn in creation, but Paul is the firstborn over all creation. The Greek word uh, firstborn is prototype, prototype. He was, and he was and is the firstborn over all creation. Paul continues, In Jesus all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And just as the preposition is very important in that Jesus was the firstborn over 
all creation. So the prepositions are important here. First, Paul establishes that Jesus was God. The Son and the Father were one. Then Paul asserts that Jesus was the active agent of creation, being with God and being God, as John wrote in his prologue to his gospel. And now Paul declares that all things have been created through him and for him. Say that with me. Through him and for him. In contrast to the Gnostics and in contrast to what most people still believe in our world and maybe in the church today, Paul asserted that Jesus, who was God, spirit and flesh in one, divine and human in one, was instrumental in the creation of everything that is and that all of that is good, that the physical creation created by the spiritual spirit God dwelling in Jesus was all good. The author of the Gospel of John talks about the Word made flesh. The Gnostics didn't believe and couldn't believe, rejected all of these things. The word, word, when the author of the Gospel of John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That word, word, is logos in Greek. And for the Greeks in philosophy, they had this idea of something called the Logos in their philosophy, which was defined as the divine reason implicit in the cosmos that orders it and gives it form and meaning. Logos, word. In the beginning was the word, and the Greeks could buy into this statement, as could the Jews and secular people. In the beginning was the word, word, which is loaded with all of this Greek philosophy meaning, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, interestingly, if we work our way backward, and I'm just going to spend a moment on this, go back to the book of Genesis, and it's God who creates. And how does God create? God speaks things into being. And the Hebrew word is dabar. God creates by speaking, by saying, Debar. And when the Hebrew Old Testament is translated into Greek, do you know which word is used there to translate God speaks and things are created? It is the word logoi, the verb form of logos. In the beginning, God spoke things into creation. God Jesus things into creation. Are you following all of this? God said, let there be light, and there was light. And over and over and over for six days, God said, and God said, logoi, logos, and God spoke things into existence. In him, Jesus, God's logos, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And Paul wants his readers to be clear that it wasn't only some things the good things, the lofty things, the spiritual things that were created in Jesus or by Jesus, but all things, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. And we don't know exactly what Paul means or how to distinguish each of these four terms. Some think Paul may have been referring to the Gnostic idea that there were these many, many emanations between God who is Holy Spirit and down here on earth humanity because God who was wholly good as spirit couldn't really connect with much less create things that were material, spiritual, physical, flesh, human. 
We don't know what Paul was referring to exactly when he says thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. But what is clear is that everything that has been created was created in Jesus, by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. Paul could have easily written that in, by, through, and for Jesus, all people, or even all beings, were created. But in order to show the complete supremacy of Jesus in every way, Paul very clearly states over and over that all things were created in Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. And this has implications for our understanding, our perspective, what we believe, the way that we think, the way that we live, the way that we act, what we do. That all things were created for Jesus. Psalm 19 begins this way, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, Debar. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into the ends of the earth, their words to the ends of the world. They declare the things that God has created, the glory of God. Jesus continually made reference to animate and inanimate things to non-living and to living parts of creation in his stories and his parables, Jesus' followers are shouting praise to Jesus as he enters Jerusalem triumphantly for the last time. The Pharisees who were hanging around watching, observing from the sidelines and the periphery say to Jesus, tell your disciples to be silent, rebuke them for praising you as at a minimum a great king in David's lineage and at most, God rebuked them. And Jesus says, even if I rebuke them, the stones creation will cry out in praise. In the well-known eighth chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul wrote about how along with humanity, the whole creation has been groaning, longing to be liberated with humanity from its subjection to decay, from the products of the fall. In chapter one of his magnum opus to the Romans, the apostle Paul wrote, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, Allah, Psalm 19, being understood from what has been made. We see the handiwork of God in all of creation. And then Paul says in Romans 8, that all of this creation participates with us, humanity, everything all together in our brokenness and our fallenness and our suffering and our pain, longing to be redeemed and reconciled to God. Which is exactly what Paul says in verse 19 of Colossians 1, that the Father will do through the Son, quote, reconciling to himself not just humanity but all things, whether things in heaven or things on earth, in the words of the New Testament scholar David Garland, God does not restrict this reconciliation to one segment of creation, humans. Did you get that? The whole creation groans and longs for the revealing of God's redemption in and through Jesus. And as Christian medical doctor Matthew Sleet has pointed out, the scriptures often talk about God's good creation. Moreover, Sleet writes, other than people, the Bible talks more about trees than any other living part of creation. And just maybe in our understanding of the scriptures and our Christian faith, we have missed the forest and the trees. 
In the words of the exhausted New Testament commentator William Barclay, it was for the Son that all things were created. The Son is not only the agent of creation, He is also the goal and the end of creation. That is to say, creation was created to be His and to give Him glory. And if this is true, and since this is true, and since this is how things are, several other things are also true and in play. First, without being anti-science this morning and without being anti-evolution and leaving that conversation for another day, time, and place, the Apostle Paul and the Scriptures as a whole call us to a worldview that sees things, the rocks and the trees and the flowers and the bees, not primarily as nature, but as creation. Not so much as things that simply exist, but as things that were made by someone, with that someone being God in Christ and through Christ. And this is a subtle but very important shift in our worldview, church, especially given the world in which we have grown up, the culture, and the milieu in which we live. Thus, I can no longer say as a follower of Jesus or someone who is in Christ I can no longer see the mountains and the valleys and the sun and the moon and the constellations and the clouds and the rainbows and the ladybugs and the chimpanzees as things that just happened, as things that just are, or as happened chances of nature, but as part of the intentional and wonderful design of a brilliant and all-powerful and good and loving creator in Christ and through Christ and for Christ. We are called to see the created world as a created world, conceived and fashioned by a creator with a purpose. And part of this remains, part of this remains remembering three things. Who the creator is, in other words, the Lord God, and two, the means by which the creator created, in other words, Jesus, in Jesus and through Jesus, and three, the reason the creator created, in other words, for Jesus, for the Christ, for his pleasure and honor and delight, for Christ's glory. The Gnostics of Colossae would have rejected the idea that a God who was spirit could have created a physical world that was good, good, good as Genesis repeats. But the Apostle Paul responds that the one true God who exists eternally as spirit and incarnate as Jesus Christ created everything good and all of it for Jesus, who's the center of everything. And evangelical Christianity's emphasis primarily on people's souls and less on our bodies and maybe less on the physical world which in some ways resembles elements of Gnosticism from the first century frankly. We have capitulated good biblical theology about creation and the created order and abandoned those things to the realm of the pantheists and the new age thinkers who have gladly embraced them and made them their own and so by them owning or possessing or clinging to them have scared away true people seeking to follow Jesus. Afraid of being sucked into the worship of nature and the earth in place of God, we have neglected God's good creation 
and the purpose of such. And yet, as Reformed theologian Abraham Kuyper said so many years ago forcefully, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And Paul would say, yours and for you. And so may we remember, from a biblical perspective, our world, the whole universe, didn't just come into existence. It was created by a creator, God. And the means by which God created was Jesus, through Jesus. And the reason that God created was for Jesus, for him, for his pleasure, for his delight, for his glory, for his self. Jesus the Christ was the son of a Jewish carpenter. He walked the earth for more or less 30, maybe 33 years. During the time of his public ministry, he healed, he taught, he did miracles, he preached, he offended, he comforted, he served, and finally gave himself up for others on a cross for the sins of many, for the sins of the world. And on the third day, three days later, was resurrected. And he was and is also and at the same time and always that person, Jesus, son of a carpenter, the image of the invisible God, icon as we talked about last week, the exact representation of his being in whom the fullness of God dwelt and the one in whom and through whom and for whom all things were created. And so we are called to see God in all of that and the glory of Jesus in creation. And then there is one other thing. When God created us, human beings, our ancestors, he didn't place us in a box or a house or a cave, but he placed us in a garden. From the second chapter of Genesis, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. It is not enough to appreciate creation, though I hope we do that. I uh, wanted to get a series of slides up on the screen and just didn't get to it this morning of photographs that I took over the last couple of months from my morning walks with our youngest child to school. Just seeing the incredible glory in creation of the flowers and the fauna in dozens and dozens of magnificent and glorious colors this spring. And remembering in every one of those things, every flower, every blossom, every plant, every magnificent creation was created by God through Jesus for Jesus. And it reflects his pleasure and his glory. We live in a place that is rich and abundant. More rich and abundant than most places on earth. Where not only the heavens declare the glory of God, but the mountains and the trees and the rivers and the streams. May we not overlook those things. So may we not only appreciate them, see them, be reminded of God's glory in 
every aspect of creation, from the ladybug to the dragonfly to this circular 360-degree rainbow that I saw this week straight above us in the sky. May we not only appreciate these things, but also understand our call to care for it. We live in a consumer-driven world in which it is easy to think that, quote, all things exist for our consuming rather than for Christ and for his glory. But Paul says all things, especially in and of the created order, actually exist for Christ and for his glory. I'm sure that Jesus is willing to share. And certainly in the pleasure and glory. But it is not our place to take from God's glory in any way in creation. All things, especially in the created order, exist for his glory. So that it is appropriate and good that we be interested in and invested in caring for such and preserving such. And again, this is another big shift that we have to make when and as we are in Christ. The first shift is to see all that is in our universe as not just having happened, but being specifically created by a loving God for Jesus. The second shift of sorts involves understanding who it's for in the way that we view it Without getting into the realms that some will feel are political, I think we can all agree from the scriptures that creation exists more for Christ's enjoyment and glory than for our use and consumption. And if we truly believe this and live as if it were true, it is as big of a worldview shift as many, for many of us, at least when lived out, as that difference between nature and creation of things being created by a sovereign creator rather than random reactions of big bangs and little atoms. I would imagine, and I'm speaking for myself now, as Paul does in 1 Corinthians 7 in some strange way, I'm speaking for myself now and not so much for the Lord or on behalf of the Scriptures, though I think this is consistent with the Scriptures I would imagine that a church and a people who take seriously these important verses about the supremacy of Jesus will also take seriously God's call to care for God's good creation in so many ways. More than users, we are invited to be admirers. More than consumers, we are invited to be stewards. More than creation being about us, it is about Jesus. More than it being for us, Paul says it is for Jesus. At a time in which the care of and stewardship of God's good creation has been turned into a political standoff and reduced to dollars and ideologies and so many ways left to the radical left, I would imagine that the people of God and particularly of Jesus would be most interested in the preservation and the well-being of every aspect of creation, all things. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him, 
All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself a few things No. Living things? No. Just human beings? No. All things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, shed on a cross. Let's pray. God, help us to hear your, your, your words and your word and to understand them and to love them and to cling to them and to be guided by them, to be shaped by them, to be fashioned by them just as you fashioned us. Free us from, from our own selfish desires or wants or perspectives. Help us to retain that which is from you and forget all else. Thank you for the beauty of creation which we are incredibly blessed to witness. Maybe more so than most people on earth. Make us grateful. Help us to stand in awe. May the glory of the breadth of your creation in the skies and in the forests. Be in our minds for you, for your beloved son, for his pleasure, for his glory, for his honor, for himself. May all these things be so. Amen.